to The Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. As always, I'm Wesley Fenza. I'm here with Eniash Brodsky and David Spearman. Today, we'll be talking about the news from the last two weeks. We'll be covering some good news, and we'll be giving post-COVID predictions. And we're going to start out with feedback. Eniash, I think you had a some feedback from Reddit you wanted to share. Yeah, uh, so I don't actually open or create um, topics on Reddit for uh, the Mind Killer, but someone does, and it is appreciated. Uh, and so it's on the uh, Bayesian conspiracy Reddit. Yes, exactly. Since that is where we are, we are currently hosted, uh, a user by the name of Sonarman720 says that uh, he does normally wave the veteran flag and doesn't interact with a lot of rationalists, but is fairly confident there aren't a lot of veterans in the community. But he is one. He served on a submarine, and so he's got some Navy context. And he said that the decision to relieve the carrier captain made some sense due to the following points. The first being that military personnel are not in the high-risk category, since almost by definition, because they're mostly young, mostly healthy, and have a lot of pre-existing conditions screening before they join. So it's unlikely to be very harmful for them anyway. Uh, the second point is that risking your life in military service and sacrificing opportunities is kind of the whole point in the military, and that it's a voluntary risk. The, there is no draft right now. And his third point is the probably the one that I found the most compelling here, that aircraft carriers are the single most powerful asset in the U.S. military. They're the most visible power projection and deterrence unit available to the national mission. Um, I'm going to say with the exception of nukes, but... Yeah, in conventional warfare anyway, definitely uh, the most visible and most deterrence. And uh, so advertising the inability of one of them to operate is uh, just stupidly, so it's almost suicidally stupid to say this great big thing that we depend on our defense for isn't operating right now. And so the captain, you know, did the proper thing by advising his superiors, but letting it out, get out in the open like that was uh, a failure of his, and he rightly got relieved. Yeah, I mean, if I if I remember right, this was the first American aircraft carrier to be taken out of action since World War II. So, yeah, that, that does make some sense. It's kind of complicated because I'm not sure how much the appearance of readiness matters relative to actual readiness. But... I mean, if this guy was in the Navy, then I assume he has a better grasp on that than I do, so I'll defer to him. At, at any rate, it's certainly not zero, even if it may not be as high as some people would say. Yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly moved by that argument, just because it seems to be a lot of um, theoretical risk, not actual risk. It doesn't sound like what the captain did actually put anyone at risk. Um and especially about the point that's like, oh, well, you sign up to risk your lives. It's yes, you sign up to risk your lives, but you trust that your superior officers are only going to put your lives in risk if absolutely necessary. And that's the deal. You risk your lives, but your superiors have to be responsible. And this just wasn't. So I think it was uh, a good thing for him to speak out there. And I think that sort of thing is unfortunately necessary, and I don't agree that he should be punished for it. And apparently neither does the Navy. Huzzah! Because they have come out in support of Captain Crozier um, and asked him to be reinstated. And it's kind of working its way up through this civilian oversight. 
Uh, so it, it remains to be seen whether he's actually going to be reinstated. But there are a lot of the officially the Navy is supports reinstating him, and so does um, so do a lot of the civilian leaders. But it's it's no one's quite sure if it's going to happen. That is really awesome, and it helps me to have some faith restored in the system. Wait, so if quote unquote the Navy supports him and a lot of the civilian oversight connected to the Navy supports him. Like, was he just fired by the Admiral one step above him without, like, talking to anyone? Or what? I, I Like, I, I'm glad to hear that, but now I'm confused about who fired him in the first place. He was fired by a civilian leader who was no longer in the job. Ah. Uh. He, wait, he's now no longer in his job? Correct. He resigned wow. because of this. Okay, that's a heck of a backlash. Yeah, no kidding. And I, I, I will say, I'm not comfortable just, like, laughing off military preparedness. Because, yeah, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. But, uh, again, this, like, I'm, I have a pretty good back, batting record vis-a-vis stuff in the Taiwan Straits, but again, I haven't looked into this in that much detail. I do understand that China is making some very aggressive uh, military maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait, uh, flying bombers over sovereign Taiwanese uh, waters and possibly even the island itself. So, like, it, even if like, I don't think we're going to go to war, but if we are in a position where we are conspicuously not ready to go to war, that increases the probability of we of us going to war for, re- for pretty standard game theory trembling hand reasons. Well, this is why I, I described it as a theoretical risk, because this is one aircraft carrier. We have 44. So I don't think anyone's hearing, oh, one of our aircraft carriers is out of commission. Well, now's the time to attack. You know, there's 43 other ones. Could be a sign of weakness that the Americans are, you know, so quick to bench any anything over the slightest flu, you know, symptoms, which I don't think is, like, actually the case, but uh, could be taken that way, depending on... How militant the opposition is. Well, I uh, I'm with Harry Potter on this one. Who cares what idiots think? <laughs> well, when the idiots are in control of the Chinese <laughs> military, that it might be a problem. And I mean, it's it's easy to say that like, oh, we have 43 other aircraft carriers. Yeah, but the oceans are kind of big, and like, I I assume that we have those other 43 distributed in a way that we can't just have one knocked out of the... I mean, so the Department of Defense is pretty comically wasteful about this sort of port project, so maybe we do just have, like, five aircraft carriers standing by, ready to fill in whatever gaps they need to, but I'd be pretty surprised to learn that was the case. Sure, but I can't imagine the locations of our aircraft carriers are secret. That seems to be the sort of thing a single spy satellite could track very easily. 
So everyone knows that this aircraft carrier is docked. It's not yeah. like it's supposed to be guarding China. And the guy's like, instead of doing that, we're uh, we're just out of commission because of this virus. Yeah, well, I, I think with the, with the level of expertise the three of us have, all of this is Monday morning quarterbacking. And there's been a lot of that during this whole thing, and it drives me nuts. So if you're okay with it, I'd just as soon shelve this issue for now. All right, fair enough. Uh, David, you had uh, something you wanted to say about last episode. Yeah, I wanted to say, possibly surprisingly, that uh, I 112% agree with Inyasha's troop deployment. Uh, his troop deployment was just about how starving the beast is stupid and terrible, and I agree, and not only do I agree, Milton Friedman agrees, and he's the important one in this discussion. Uh, he said something along the lines of the real harm that government does isn't in what it taxes, it's in what it spends. Um, and yeah, starving the beast is stupid and terrible, and people talking like it wasn't stupid and terrible is what led us to our monstrous deficits, which I'm pretty sure are going to come back to haunt us at some point. So, yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that my when uh, you were snarking about how I probably had thoughts on his troop deployment, my thoughts are, yes, that is 100% correct. I, I was actually kind of surprised because I thought that you would be in favor of, you know, starving the government. Is this is this primarily because attempts to starve the government mean that the government just keeps on spending as much as it did, but now goes into debt instead of instead of actually raising the money? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So the beast doesn't starve; it just eats on the future. Yep. Consumes its own children. It eats the young. Oh, oh, that's a delightful metaphor <laughs> all right well speaking of david's thoughts uh we're gonna move into our news section and david you had something you wanted to tell us about uh your political philosophy and uh potential for uh how it would handle this sort of situation yeah i i don't want to spend a ton of time on this because god knows i talk enough on this show and this isn't so much news as like david engages in speculative fiction exercises um so as i think i've mentioned in several places i am an anarcho-capitalist and i just want to put a few things out there uh that have been bugging me especially whenever people say a phrase in the ballpark of oh, blah, 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 there's no libertarians in a pandemic. So for one thing, uh, anarcho-capitalism, as I conceive it, doesn't have a state capacity of zero. Uh, I am not an... Um, Wait, what does not... state capacity of zero mean? So state capacity is basically the ability of a government, or in this case, a government-like entity, to do state-like things, things like controlling highway bandits, uh, constructing public goods, and uh, otherwise providing them uh, basically the capacity of government to do government stuff. Uh, that's okay. state capacity. 
obviously a state capacity of zero is in a region that's like Somalia or other things that people think of when they think of anarchy, um, where there's just a breakdown in civil order and nothing, there's no, like, centralized or even decentralized method for providing those sorts of services in a coordinated manner. Uh, as I conceive of it, and I think there's some pretty good examples of this if you look at places like Somalia after things were no longer as bad as they were there, uh, places like the um, anarcho-feminist uh, Kurdish region of Syria, uh, Saga period Iceland, uh, if you don't have a government with like a crowned head and all the trappings of state like that, people actually do a decent job of uh, coordinating on things like uh, providing public goods, stopping bandits, etc. Uh, one way you can see that from this present crisis is how a lot of businesses were shutting down or otherwise implementing social distancing before they were required to do so by law. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's also the matter that um, the FDA and CDC kind of fucked up real bad and uh, did not cover themselves in glory, especially early on with botching testing, uh, requiring a bunch of onerous regulations that are keeping PPE production low, uh, etc. Um, they're also... Basically, centrally, the federal government is basically, and to a lesser extent, or actually probably a greater extent, state governments are basically centrally planning who is and isn't an essential business, um, which we talked about last episode, how we don't really like that distinction, and uh, just using the price mechanism where there's some degree of liability to employers for workers who get sick on the job and then letting the price mechanism sort it out seems like a much better way of doing that than trying to centrally plan. Uh, because even in a pandemic, all the old problems with central planning still exist. Uh, there are also historical cases where... Uh, governments have imposed pandemic control measures, especially in the 1800s around cholera, and those had a tendency to erupt into riots, and uh, this is the majorly speculative fiction part of the discussion, but I feel like if things like social distancing were voluntary, or even voluntary to the extent that, like, your insurance prices would go way, way up, or uh, other mechanisms that I imagine an anarcho-capitalist society would have for this sort of thing. Uh, I imagine that that sort of uh, breakdown in social order and rioting would be much less of a concern than if uh, people felt like some man from Washington or wherever was... Uh, coming in and ordering them that they no longer could have a livelihood uh, like you saw a lot of during the 
uh, protests in wherever the fuck it was. Um, Wisconsin. Yes, Wisconsin. Thank you. I have a, a question, like, I guess mainly towards West because you're in New York, but, like, how mandatory... I'm in New Jersey. Oh, that's right next to New York, though, right? Are you in some I'm part in the that's part far that's away? next to Pennsylvania. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I, I was wondering, like, how mandatory are these lockdowns? Because it, like, in Denver, it seems to be pretty much voluntary anyway. There's no, like, police out pulling people over and making sure they, they're only going to grocery stores or doctor's appointments or whatever and i don't know it doesn't seem like there is much law enforcement on quarantine stuff over here yeah nobody's doing that here um i think things may be different in the densest cities i'm not sure new york city in particular since it's been hit the hardest may have some uh you know more some stronger enforcement but where i am there's very little so a lot of the laws aren't being enforced against individuals. There are some exceptions, like the people who went to the drive-in church we talked about last week. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, they're being enforced against businesses. People aren't being told, if you go to this business, then you'll be fined, imprisoned, whatever. The businesses are being told, if you serve customers then you'll be fined, imprisoned, whatever. And that's kind of the, like, it's more politically palatable, so I understand why people are doing it, but practically speaking, it kind of comes down to the same thing. Um, and yeah. there's actually an economic theory that describes how that happens around incidents of taxation, but I will not nerd out about that because, as mentioned previously, I talk enough on this show. So I will say that this is a situation where I am glad to have a government, um, which normally I'm very uh, sympathetic to the anarcho-capitalism arguments, uh, mainly because the government does keep proving itself to be bad at most things. Uh, in this situation, I think you know an, an anarcho-capitalist society could handle some things better, but would handle other things worse. Uh, in particular, I think they'd be much better at not overreacting, which I'll go on record here to say I think we have. Um, but I don't know that that's – you know I think you want to err on the side of overreacting in a situation like this. Um, I think an anarcho-capitalist society would be better at – avoiding the dumbest restrictions that people have put like i i don't remember exactly what all the restrictions in wisconsin were but there were some that seemed very arbitrary um and i know right now the chesapeake bay is closed to recreational boaters hmm. which doesn't make any sense they let you drive around in your car but they won't let you drive in a boat you're not getting within six feet of anyone on a boat i promise yeah, so uh, some highlights from the Wisconsin social distancing laws are uh, not being allowed to fish, which is also a famously solitary activity, uh, not being able to buy paint. Um, those are the two I see talked about a lot, but I can't remember what uh, any of yeah, the others I, are. I think there was a list of some more. We'll try to link something in the show notes with the, the full... The full list. Uh, but yeah, I think anarcho-capitalism, obviously, they wouldn't do dumb stuff like that. But I do think that it, it, it's really questionable 
if the social distancing we're doing right now is really helping that much. Um, so I don't know that it is. But if it is, I don't think an anarcho-capitalist society would be doing it. Um, and if you look around at you know, countries or even some um, states that aren't mandating social distance rules where the government's not forcing people uh, or let's say coercing people to socially distance, they're really not doing it. If you look at a country like Belarus, they're the only European country that doesn't have any restrictions from the government and everyone's just out. They're not distancing at all. And like I said, it remains to be seen whether that's going to cause a lot more illness. Um, it's pretty speculative right now, but you know, I think an anarcho-capitalist society just wouldn't wouldn't have the mechanisms for erring on the side of caution in a situation like this. Yeah, I I disagree, but like I said, um, this is pretty much a speculative fiction exercise anyway, so I'm okay letting this matter rest for now. If you are, all right. Well, then speaking of states that are starting to loosen restrictions, let's talk about Georgia who has lifted a lot of their social distancing restrictions, allowing people to go to a lot of different shops like barbers, gyms, that sort of thing. Um, and they are, they've decided they've had enough of the social distancing. Uh, so what do we think of that? Is Georgia just opening it up entirely, or are they doing this thing that a lot of people are doing where you're having cutting in half the capacity that you used to have for your stores? Yeah, they're doing a, like, staged phase-in, and this is their stage one. Um, so they're not completely open yet, and they are putting restrictions on things. Um, but notably, they are not they have not gotten any results in terms of um, the number of deaths or the number of infections that shows that they have this under control at all. Well, some people would say that there's, like, a week to two-week lag in uh, COVID cases after something like this happens. Um, I don't know. What, what do I think of it? I think it would make for a good experiment, and if things work for Georgia, then the rest of the states should follow in their lead. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do want to talk really quickly about the whole staggered opening thing. Uh, I'm not sure if Georgia in particular is doing this, but uh, I think Florida is uh, uh, doing a staggered opening thing where their beaches are open but only during certain hours. <laughs> and I wanted to talk about this because it's fucking stupid and infuriating. So if you have something that is open in a restricted time frame and people want to go do that thing, then everyone is going to do it during that restricted time frame. If you yep. want people to be distanced... If you want things spread out, then what you need to do is have it open as much time as possible so the people who want to do the thing are actually, like, staggered out throughout the day. And, of course, ideally you'd want, like, some sort of random allocation mechanism so you can say this small group uh, has access to the beach from 10 to 11 in the morning this group has it from 11 to 12 and so on so that you're guaranteed not to have clumping but trying to dictate where the clumping happens will only make the clumping worse 
Stop! Yeah, that's stupid. Uh, so this is so this is why uh, anyone who tries to make policy that isn't an economist should be shot. Thank you for coming to my <laughs> TED talk. <laughs> now, see, I disagree with this because you know they say the beaches are open from six to eleven and then five to eight, so they're closed from eleven to five. You you are definitely going to increase the density of people on the beach from six to eleven and from five to eight by doing that. But you're not – everyone who wanted to go between 11 and 5 isn't just going to go in one of these time periods. That's not how people go to the beach. You know, the people who are like diehards, like definitely will do anything to get to the beach, sure, they're going to go. But the people who are like, well, uh, you know, I'd like to go to the beach, but it's not that big a deal and I'm kind of worried about social distancing and, you know, I don't know. They're, they're not going to put in the extra effort to make it early or, or in the evening. You're definitely going to get – overall fewer people at the beach by doing this which is what they're trying to do well it's, yeah, it's an yeah, empirical but we question but we, about oh go ahead okay so uh, i agree with you in principle but we don't care about the total number of people who go to the beach we care about the people per square foot uh at any given time and like i think inyasha was about to say it's an empirical question whether the elasticity of demand for beach time is such that restricting that time will lower that peak density or raise it. And like Kaplan says at the end of the article I'm talking about here, uh, this almost certainly was not the result of a, a meticulous cost-benefit analysis by a team of highly paid economists. It was just a dumb political compromise where one side wanted the beach open, another side wanted the beach closed, and so they decided, okay, we'll open the beach a little, which is the worst possible outcome. Well, I can't speak to the decision-making process. I'm sure it was typically horrible. Uh, but I do think that you're not... You, if you open up the beaches, you're going to get density no matter what. People are going to crowd onto them. Um, and I think if you're if you're reducing... The overall number of people going, that's still having a positive effect. I don't – I doubt that it's having enough of an effect to justify actually closing it. But I do think that's a debatable point. I don't think it's as obviously stupid as you think. I, I mean, first of all, I want to say that David took the words right out of my mouth. I totally would have been as eloquent and technical as he was. So darn you, I David. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't I, I mean, obviously, it would reduce the amount of people that in total that are going. But I do think that it the density is what matters more than the uh, than the total number of people going. Like if you have 100 people going to McDonald's, whether they all show up at the same time or whether there's only one in the building at any moment makes a big difference. And I think the, the density is probably the more um important factor although again that is something that would have to be tested uh, before we actually know where the break even is see in new jersey we're already set up for this because we could just give out uh beach tags that have a time window on them oh. i'm sure there are so many people desperate to go to the beach in new jersey that that's going to be a big help can you <laughs> sell beach tags yes you can wow so They're it's transferable. like Okay, I'm just that's that's a good business opportunity for someone once those open up, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, usually there's no shortage of beach tags. You, if you want one, you can just go buy one from the state. But I imagine 
that they probably will sell a limited number this summer. I, I am disappointed that this is an audio medium and neither you guys nor the audience could see the face I made when you used the phrase, <laughs> you can just buy one from the state. <laughs> I I'm, I'm don't have a mirror handy, but I'm convinced it was pretty funny. Can, can you not normally buy one from the state where you are? You don't need to buy one from the state. You can just go to the beach like a normal person. Oh, sounds horrible. Yeah, that depends on whether your state wants to allow that to happen or not. Those beaches should be owned by corporations who charge you to come on. I mean, it would be better than them being owned by the state who charges you to come on. Exactly. Uh, actually, uh, historically, beaches have been attractions that got you to buy things that were free, but they got you to buy things like uh, hot dogs and uh, amusement park tickets, and that's how Coney Island happened. Yeah, it works in Wildwood just the same, even with the beach tags. Well, I live in Colorado, so I have no opinion on this beach issue. Ah, <laughs> poor landlocked. Yeah. Poor landlocked Eniash. <laughs> All right, so moving on. Since we last spoke, there's been another development in uh, the phase openings in which a bunch of states are forming coalitions to coordinate their opening up. Um, there's some New England states doing it. The Mid-Atlantic states are doing it. There's uh, All the states on the West Coast have formed a coalition, and there's some Midwest states who have also done so. Um, and this seems to be a reaction to the lack of leadership from Washington on this. Um, and, and that's how that's certainly how Trump is interpreting it, um, and a lot of right-wingers are interpreting it, and a lot of red states are interpreting it who refuse to join these coalitions. Um, but I just want to say I think this is a good thing that these states are coordinating, that they're not waiting for Washington to tell them what to do. Um, and at the same time are going to be able to make, you know, regional decisions instead of just state-by-state state ones. I also think this is wonderful. Um, I think the federal government has been grabbing too much power for too long, and it's nice to see some states uh, working to free themselves of the government a little bit. Uh, kind of disappointing that you have to wait for the government to be so totally incompetent before they did it. I am surprised that the red states are opting out, since red states are usually the most, you know, we should be completely free of the federal tyranny states. So that, uh, that, that yeah, goes counter about to guns my expectations. Ah, okay, well, all right. Yeah, no, this is just, uh, the reason the red states aren't doing it is this is just a partisan issue. And the red state governors all say, all want to say, well, I support Trump, and doing this is against Trump, so they think. And uh, so they're not doing it. This is why I hate partisan politics. This shouldn't be partisan. Either you're a federalist or or not. And why why does who is in charge of the federal government matter? Because politics are the mind killer and arguments are soldiers. God That's our entire stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hasn't anyone told you that? Ah, pwned. Yeah, no, you're just you're assuming that politicians have principles, which is. I'm assuming that anyone at all has principles, which seems to be a bad assumption. Uh, principles that will override their partisanship? Usually not. Ugh. Yoda underscore this is why you fail dot GIF. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Uh, also, I do want to say real quick, I am 
also optimistic about these coalitions, albeit slightly more cautiously than it sounds like you two are. I worry that if these really take off, they might uh, take more from state governments than they do from the federal government. And uh, if government we must have, smaller and more local government seems to be better. Uh, so if these coalitions end up uh, taking over a lot of functions formerly done by states, then I'll consider that at least a minor loss. Uh, but if they do end up taking power from the federal government, then that'll be a pretty big win. So cautiously optimistic on my end. Yes, well, I have uh, lots of opinions about local governments, but I'll save that for a different show. My biggest worry about the coalitions would be if they start getting a lot more power before drafting up some sort of constitution, they may not have, you know, formalized limits, which admittedly our government often completely ignores, but at least they're there in writing, and uh, if there wasn't even anything in writing, I don't know, they could end up taking a lot more power than the, than the federal government even has. No, I'm not terribly worried about this, because these, these are sort of ad hoc agreements that are seemingly limited to coordinating reopening the economies in this particular situation. I don't see these coalitions enduring far past this current crisis. Well, there's nothing more permanent than an interim government other than stopgap spending, so... <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, if, if these coalitions did start seriously overreaching, I imagine that the Supreme Court will have exactly zero trouble slapping them down. So uh, it's, I'm more worried about what they'll end up taking from states than I am about them overreaching in a way that's, like, actually unconstitutional. Well, I think the state Supreme Courts would, uh, you know, safeguard the rights of the states as well. So, like I said, I'm not terribly worried about this going much yeah. further. I was talking about SCOTUS, but, uh, yeah. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. I think the state Supreme Courts will protect the state's rights, while the federal Supreme Court protects the federal rights. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I guess the best thing about these coalitions is that there is no coalition-wide military. Yeah, it will be interesting if these coalitions end up forming, like, more or less along circuit court lines, hmm. and uh, circuit courts end up actually having, like, a coalition that matches them. Uh, I don't expect that to happen, but it'll be kind of funny if it does. Yeah, I don't think they're doing that. I think... California and the other Pacific states are different circuits. I know Pennsylvania and New Jersey are third circuit, and I think the other New England states are, are a different circuit. Um, so I don't think that's what's happening. Yeah, like I said, I don't expect that. It'll just be funny if it is. Indeed. All right, so moving on. Um, I think, David, you had this story about the FDA and non-cotton clubs. That was actually me uh, oh, for okay. once. Yeah. So in another example of how awesome the FDA is and why we should never, ever abolish it, uh, they had they had not allowed non-cotton swabs to be used in any sort of uh, testing kits. I don't know exactly why. Longstanding rule is theirs. But people just couldn't produce enough cotton swabs fast enough to put out the number of tests that we need in the country. 
And so there was a big old, you know, another um, bottleneck that was preventing us from making more tests. And finally, the FDI said, okay, guys, fine. You can use these non-cotton swabs, even though they're deadly and will kill 1% of the population. Um, so now that they've listed, lifted this restriction, we can finally start making kits at a faster clip. And, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for holding things up, FDA. You know, Eniash, yeah. I'm detecting a hint of sarcasm in your voice <laughs> on that last story. I I don't think there's anything special about cotton swabs at all. I don't think so either. And I think we can all agree that the FDA has been incredibly harmful in terms of how slow-moving it is and how much it has been preventing people from doing. So score one for David and his uh, end the government plan. Okay, that was, the, that, was, that was a pretty fast one. That's all I had there. Okay, yeah, so the next story we were going to discuss is warnings of worldwide food shortages. And I don't have a ton to say about this, but I just wanted to put it out there that the World Food Program has been warning that because of everything getting shut down, um, that there could be uh, worldwide famine. Um, I don't think it's probably not something that the you know developed world needs to terribly worry about, but it is set to impact a lot of the less developed world, um, and it's something to keep an eye on and see if there's any way we can avert. What is what is the uh, thing that is causing this? Is it like just less food being produced, or is it not being distributed because um, transport is being shut down? Uh, I think, um, at least in part, it's that America is a pretty big food exporter. So even if um, even if poor countries do have homegrown food, just because of how supply and demand works, if uh, uh, American exports are shut off, then that'll raise the prices and that'll push a lot of people into food insecurity. Um, there's probably also problems with local supply chains and uh, that sort of thing being disrupted, farmers not being able to get fertilizer, uh, etc. This is this is one of these things that really sucks because I don't know how excited people in the U.S. are going to be are going to get about this because. Obviously, it's not going to be, for the most part, people in the U.S. that starve. It's going to be people in third world countries. And if if the U.S. population is already dealing with a pandemic and a massive economic slowdown or, or depression here, I get the feeling a lot of people in those countries are just going to be like, well, you're on your own, guys, and then starvation. Yeah, I anticipate that as well. I feel like America is in a very, like, take care of number one mood right now. Well, I mean, I, I believe that all humans in general are in that mood when things get very bad, and it just sucks because the third world countries are the ones that will be least able to take care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also want to take this opportunity to remind people that the uh, saving the economy versus saving lives framing of the reopening debate is a fiction. The economy does, in fact, save lives. Uh retaining the shutdown is not free uh it might be worth it i'm pretty sure it is at this point but you should be coming to that decision as a result of a lot of study and soul searching 
not as a snap decision, and if you think the question is obvious, you probably are wrong. Yeah, I mean, all the numbers right now are very speculative, but it could be, you know, something along the lines of we save 200,000 American lives in order to have 100 million foreign people starving, um, which, I, I, you know, like I said, speculative, probably not going to happen, but boy, is that dark. Yeah, and definitely worth considering when we're discussing, you know, the idea of opening the economy. Um, sadly, it's very difficult to get any kind of numbers on any of this. So how do you do How do you even start doing the math? Yeah, and people would argue, you know, why is reopening the gyms and the dance clubs going to uh, going to increase the rate of food production and transport to people in other countries like those seem decoupled? even though that's a lot of what people mean when they say restart the economy, quote-unquote. So, real quick, the way it happens is those places reopen, they employ people, those people who were once getting uh, a few hundred dollars maybe sometime from the government are now getting proper, consistent paychecks. Uh, they're using that to spend money. Uh, companies are using that money to turn profits that profit will be reinvested into supply chains eventually it gets to the point where those people go to the grocery store buy food food producers and um uh food producers also get those profits put money into supply chains start looking for foreign markets etc and that's how the economy works yep you don't. You need to know nothing else about the economy. You're now expert <laughs> economists. All uh, right. <laughs> Thank you, David. This has all been worth it. I'm out. <laughs> oh darn! This whole thing was a ploy for you to trick me out of my secrets, wasn't it? <laughs> so speaking Everything. of experts, let's move on to our next story. <laughs> which, I just looked at know, it. <laughs> I wasn't sure I wanted to talk about because. I don't want the podcast to be about the Trump show, but this one I just couldn't let go by. This, a couple of days ago, Trump, in his daily briefing, decided to speculate about whether we could inject bleach into our bodies to cure the virus. And he said it in a way that was nearly guaranteed to send some people running out to buy bleach to inject into themselves. And, um, you know, at first the the mandatory disclaimer, anytime this story is discussed, don't do that. Bleach is very bad for you. It may kill you. And it will not kill the coronavirus. Well, the coronavirus can't live once you're dead. Yeah. Well, I, very true. I, yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, it's not so much that... Um, it's not so much that injecting bleach won't kill the coronavirus, <laughs> so much as uh, I vaguely remember one XKCD where the punchline is whenever you read a headline about a drug that kills cancer in a Petri dish, remember, so does a gun. Um, but this story has a happy ending because Trump got so much crap for it that he later tried to claim that he was just being sarcastic, which the people that went back and looked at the video and were like, no, you weren't. 
And then he decided he's just not doing his daily coronavirus briefing anymore, which is honestly just just improves things by a lot because those were a real problem. I will say that you said that he said it in a way that guaranteed someone was going to go out and inject bleach, but uh, having, you know, having had 24 hours pass between then and when he said that, oh, I was being sarcastic, turned out I, there weren't any reports of anyone injecting bleach. I think the general populace was smart enough to not do that. I I don't know if they were. I think the press finally got off their asses and did something because every single story I saw that mentioned this included that disclaimer that said don't do this so i i am no fan of donald trump i hope i've made that evident by now i do have to say though i i watched the video where he actually said that i'm pretty sure it was uh in some sense tongue-in-cheek and like the man is a clown so it is hard to tell but I'm pretty sure it wasn't supposed to be serious. And, I mean, his followers are idiots, so, like, even if it was a joke, it was an irresponsible joke. Because uh, after the the fish tank cleaner incident, he should know better. But also expecting Donald Trump to learn from past mistakes is kind of wishing for the impossible, so... Yeah. Fuck it. Uh I, I do want to say, though, there is something similar, which uh, I am actually pretty sure is not bullshit. Uh, you know how when you have a cold and you uh, stick your nose into a cup of really hot tea and inhale the steam, it feels really good? Uh, if you do the same with a hot toddy, which is tea with whiskey in it... Uh, I, I vaguely remember hearing from a source I'm pretty sure is reliable, uh, which if a statement is that hedged, you should not take it at face value. <laughs> but I, I think if I heard if you do the same thing with a hot toddy, then the alcohol will actually like do some disinfecting in your upper respiratory tract. Um, and I'm pretty sure that getting just alcohol, pure alcohol like you get when you do that doesn't have that deleterious a side effect again do your own research this is pretty much off the cuff so don't take my word for it and don't hold me responsible if you try it and something goes wrong but uh yeah my maybe. default expectation would be that inhaling aerosolized alcohol is a terrible thing for your lungs it's also a hot toddy doesn't really help your lungs what it helps is your sinuses um, which are not really getting inflamed by the coronavirus, except in very rare circumstances. Okay, well, like I said, don't take my word for it. Do your own research. Don't be sheep. All right, <laughs> well, the real happy ending to this story is that Trump's approval rating is back down to where it has been for about the past year. Uh, I know on our first show we talked about how he was getting a bump from this uh, situation that's going on. Uh, and he had uh, his approval rating went up, his disapproval went down, but now it's back to 52 to 43, which is where it was about a year ago. Um, his entire bump from the pandemic has disappeared, and people are remembering their partisanship uh, on the, 
from a, a cynical perspective or regaining their sanity from uh, a different perspective. The uh, the 52 to 43, that means that 52% of people approve of his? No, disapprove. Oh, disapprove. Okay, that sounded more realistic. Yeah. But then again, I'm in a very strange bubble, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, I think I think approval ratings are another one of those stupid and extremely unhelpful things where they report the bigger number first, not the approval rating first, and I hate it. Well, we're the reporters now, so yeah. if you think it's better, we can say 43% approved to 52% disapproved. Let's I do, do that. All right, and our last story in the news section about Kim Jong-un. Yeah, I put this one in just because I think not 100% of the news should be uh, coronavirus-related. Uh, although maybe this is coronavirus-related. No one's seen Kim Jong-un in a while. And uh, there's some speculation that, like, hey, what, what's going on? He, there was a holiday where he was expected to be seen, I think, yesterday, a couple days ago. And uh, no one's seen hide or hair of him, in the, at least in the international community. And people are, like, kind of wondering, is he of ill health? What exactly is going on here? Uh, but that is literally all we have, just rumors and speculation and the fact that he hasn't been seen when he was expected to be seen recently. Well, I have good news for you because uh -oh. I, there is a headline on Fox News that says Trump claims he knows how Kim Jong-un is doing. Quote, <laughs> I do have a very good idea. So there you go. Problem, oh, well, case closed. I'm glad that someone in the country knows. I'm sure once it becomes public knowledge, you'll let us know that he knew. I would emphatically recommend that everyone keep an eye on the at DPRK News Twitter account, the official Twitter account of the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea official news service for further developments. You know, David, I'm picking up on some sarcasm. <laughs> Not not sarcasm so much as just me hoping that someone falls for it and is confused. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a real Twitter account. It's a joke Twitter account, but it is absolutely hilarious and you should follow it. Speaking of the previous story about Bleach, uh, the top tweet from the DPRK news service is... Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un consults cutting-edge antivirus strategists, and it is attached to a picture of Kim Jong-un sitting next to some new-agey-looking Karen, who is probably some kind of anti-vaxxer, and also sitting next to a bottle of Clorox. Of course. All right. Well, now we're going to move on into our post-COVID predictions. As promised... We are going to be each discussing uh, one of the predictions made by Robert Graboys in his tweet thread that he posted a couple of weeks ago. Um, and David, why don't we start with you? So uh, this is a tweet thread that uh, Tyler Cowen, I believe, posted about on Marginal Revolution. It's a bunch of speculation about uh, what this person thinks life after COVID will be like and why. Uh, and it is quite long, so I recommend you read it, but we just picked out a couple that we thought were highlights. Uh, and we will link is... it in the show notes. Yes. Uh, mine is staggered work hours. During the 1918-20 to 20 Spanish flu, 
New York City businesses staggered work hours to reduce rush hour congestion on roads and subways. This lowered death rates and congestion annoyance. Hashtag post-COVID, uh, uh, this idea will gain traction. Uh, I picked this one out because it's something that economists have been saying we need to do for a long time, and I am keeping my fingers crossed that it is something good that comes out of this mess. All right, mine is about germophobia. It says, 85 years after the stock market crash destroyed my grandparents' finances, my mother still didn't trust stock markets or banks. Post-COVID, folk will retain a whiff of germophobia for the rest of their lives. And I completely agree with this. Um, and I think it is unfortunate because I think, uh, you know, pre-COVID, we were all a little too germophobic. And I'm really sad about this because I think people are going to be touching each other less. And America is a country where we tend to touch each other much less than in other parts of the world. And psychologists have speculated about this, that it causes a lot of problems and that, that people need physical contact with other people. And I feel like that issue is just going to get worse um, after we recover from this. Yeah, I, I agree that I think that is the most likely long-term effect, that people are going to be a lot more germophobic for a long time. And, I don't know, probably not a good thing, but uh, it wasn't mine that I pulled out. Um, I didn't put mine in the document because I kind of, sort of, have two that, like, are almost the same thing, in my opinion. Um, I'll go All ahead right. and say... We'll, we'll let it go just this once. Well, uh, the one I'm going to read is Mayberry Returns, where he says, Where I live, people are socially distancing, but chatting with more neighbors than ever before. A pleasant side effect of a harrowing time. Post-COVID, this renewed sense of community will continue and grow, accompanied by a resurgence of moseying. And I, I, I like, because this is from his second thread. He had two tweet threads, tweet storms, whatever they're called. I like the second ones more because I thought they were a lot more about the social aspects, which I found interesting the other one was family over mobility people were gonna stay living close to their families instead of moving for you know jobs and opportunity and stuff um i think i don't know these are i kind of would consider them good things because the fracturing of community has been drastic in at least my lifetime i don't know if maybe things were better before i was born or if i just see old you know black and white tv shows that portray them that way and so I, my memory is tainted by Hollywood instead of reality, but uh, I know that when my complex here, I live in a townhome, uh, there's like 11 units in one building, when uh, one of them caught fire and it started spreading, that brought out like everybody and in the surrounding areas, we were in the streets, uh, there was some fighting, there was uh, fighting of the fire I mean with hoses, before the firemen showed up, there was a lot of talking for honestly weeks uh, afterwards because some people were displaced from their homes permanently and I got to know my neighbors like in a way I have never known any other neighbors anywhere that I've lived like I have lived literally next door to people sharing walls with them for years and maybe like seen them in passing don't know their names didn't share more than a dozen words with them and this seems it does seem like when I go out for my walks now I see people talking to their neighbors a lot more and I still don't do it because I'm afraid of other humans and I don't know how to social, but I think that this might happen if this sort of change sticks around. I assume it would be good. I've always wanted to have a community, which is why, you know, I have dreams of maybe someday having a rationalist 
neighborhood in my area or a group home or something, and pretty sure that'll never happen because due to the fact that people do work all over the place, it makes it incredibly hard to live in one localized area. But post-COVID, if that stops being a thing, people stop traveling as much and people work from home a lot more, maybe the return of tight-knit communities will happen. Yeah, well, it's funny because I have been feeling a lot more connected to my community, but I can't tell if that's COVID or if that is having the baby because it started oh. before COVID. Um, I have a, a six-month-old, but we started um, – she was born prematurely, but even right um, about six months ago, we started walking every day down to the park and back. And I don't, so I don't know if that is what's just causing me to run into my neighbors more and talk to them more. But since COVID, there have definitely been more neighbors out and about because nobody's at work. Um, so hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that that continues uh, post COVID because it's it's pretty nice. Yeah. Okay, so now we're gonna move into happy news. Woo woo! Everyone's favorite segment. Certainly is mine. You know, since we started doing this every now and then, I just Google happy news. It turns out there is so much happy stuff out there that just is never reported on. And, like, people should just Google this sometimes. Apparently there's a Colorado animal shelter that is now empty because all the animals have been, not Colorado, Chicago, all the animals have been adopted. And, like, some people tipped the waitstaff at their favorite restaurant their entire uh, Trump check, not really Trump check, but COVID check, whatever you want to call it. Uh, to, to support the restaurant. Like, there's good people out there doing great things, and I just think everyone should Google this stuff more often because it's awesome. All right. Well, why don't you share some happy news with us? Okay, so uh, the first thing is two stories from two different episodes of Planet Money, uh, which I'd like to reiterate from last week is a great podcast, and you should all listen to it. We might embargo Planet Money happy news from now on, just to keep it mm -hmm. from dominating the section, but uh, we'll talk about it and decide. Uh, but these two stories, uh, one is pretty uncomplicatedly happy. The other one is not, like, happy, but I got a chuckle out of it. Um, and it also gives me another uh, hashtag fuck the government soldier to deploy, so that's good. Um <laughs> So the first story from Planet Money is uh, a story about a guy who, uh, I can't remember what his trade was before the pandemic, but he was just kind of like a, a mover and shaker. Um, I th actually, I think he might have actually run a moving company, but... Uh, he was just bit. like basically the the guy you would call when you needed uh, when you needed someone who knew people. And uh, his company got an email from the uh, I want to say Michigan State government that had every single small business in the Michigan business small business registry CC'd on it. Uh, basically begging for PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, and, uh, this guy, whose job is knowing a guy, well, he knew a guy, 
and he basically, like, got this cabal together of, like, a German supply chain expert, a Chinese businessman who knows a lot of textile factories, and he basically begged, borrowed, and stole an order of, uh, I think, several million masks for the state of Michigan. Uh, I'm really not doing the story justice, and you should go listen to it, because it's just so cool. Um, second story uh, was from uh, their most recent episode, I think, which is just about the businesses that are winning from the shutdown, uh, the ones that are managing to make money. Uh, and this story is uh, about a group of COBOL programmers. COBOL... Mm. Uh, is a programming language from about five million years ago. Uh, <laughs> if you look it up, you'll find that the actual like working code has column restrictions. And the reason why it has column restrictions, where you can only have working code between a certain column range, is because it needed to be able to fit on punch cards. Turns out that a lot of the internet's crucial infrastructure for doing things like, oh, I don't know, processing a record number of unemployment insurance claims is actually still running on COBOL. Uh, so there's this company called the COBOL Cowboys. Uh, it is a reference to the John Wayne film Space Cowboys. Um, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, thank you. Um... Uh, and basically, they're these 60, 70, 80-year-old nerds who know COBOL, which no one has been teaching for, like, the past 30, 40 years. And they are basically the guys keeping the infrastructure of the world running during this time period when it's being stressed in new and exciting ways. And they're doing it by writing fucking COBOL code. <laughs> so all right. Thank all you, that Cobol is to say, Cowboys. yeah. So all that is to say, uh, they're gonna be retiring soon. And I know that a lot of rationalists slash software engineers listen to this show. So if you wanna have really really good job prospects in ten, fifteen years or so, consider learning COBOL. You might be literally the only person and have a monopoly on the digital <laughs> infrastructure of the world. At some point, they're going to have to update that, but I believe they'd need people that know COBOL to do the updating anyway, right? Yes, I believe they would, too. At some point, could be a long, long time. That's true. Yeah, so next happy news story, in a similar vein of people who are just crushing it with a pandemic uh there is a strip club that is doing drive-in shows uh how does that work i'm not sure exactly i think they like it's just kind of like a drive-in movie except instead of a screen they set up a stage and they have strip shows on that stage um didn't, I, didn't I, they I, used to do this and they called it like car washes bikini car washes 
Oh, I think those were actual car washes. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I From what I've seen on TV, most bikini car washes are basically strip shows where they don't take off the bikini. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this wasn't, like, particularly substantial news or anything. It just kind of delighted me. Um, well, the real good news is that the regulators are leaving them alone, unlike the churches. Yeah, for now <laughs> at least. <laughs> All right, and you had one more good uh, piece of good news for us. Yes, uh, last piece of good news actually comes from my uh, class with Tyler Cowen. Um, so before this crisis, George Mason University, where I am a student, had this program set up called Emergent Ventures, and their uh, thinking was basically a lot of grant-making agencies uh, are really, really deep in the bureaucratic mire, and it's not unusual for a grant-making process to take months or even years. And so they set up this, um, this project called Emergent Ventures, which is just like this grant-making agency that is run out of George Mason. Its only employee is Tyler Cowen. He is doing this unpaid. Uh, the idea is they're trying to uh, fund risky, high-risk, high-reward projects. Uh, the only person you need to convince to get money is Tyler, and he will give you as much money as he thinks your idea is worth. Because he is unpaid, if the project goes bust, then uh, he will make more money because he'll be able to do his paid work, uh, and that is intended to encourage risk-taking. And then there was a massive pandemic and the global economy shut down, and uh, there were a bunch of smart scientists who had ideas about how to help but they couldn't get money because, as mentioned previously, grant-making processes take uh, months to years, and Emergent Ventures was the agency that was able to actually make grants with turnarounds of days and weeks. Uh, according awesome. to Tyler, the biggest bottleneck they've had so far is the places where the applicants they've gotten their home institutions have been dithering about whether or not they'd accept Emergent Ventures money. Uh, he specifically said Harvard w had been stalling for weeks trying to decide if their money was good enough. <laughs> and uh, they've gotten a bunch of grants in. Uh, in particular, they got quite a large grant from Elon Musk. And... Uh, Tyler actually canceled class uh, two weeks ago, uh, saying that he had urgent business he needed to take care of. And then last week, he said uh, that it was related to Emergent Ventures, hence the short notice. And um, he also mentioned this grant from Elon Musk. So I'm not saying that one of my professors had to... Uh, had to cancel class because he had an urgent phone call with real life Tony Stark, but I hmm. am imagining that because it's pretty cool. That that is wonderful news. I haven't heard of Emergent Ventures before, and thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm yeah, curious, cool. why why would some institutions not want the Emergent Ventures money? Is it like 
Nazi gold money or something? Uh, I don't know where Elon Musk gets all of his money. I assume that most of it's not Nazi gold. Uh, <laughs> okay. But yeah, Tyler's speculation was that it's just like ridiculous amounts of institutional risk aversion and if there does turn out to be some kind of problem they don't they want to like have all the uh the i's dotted and t's crossed and because the usual grant making process takes so long like people who are dotting those i's and crossing those t's are, are able to take their time uh because everyone's expecting that it's going to take forever and um they're just in this particular case the ones who don't have the incentive to be fast emergent ventures has an incentive to be fast and the obviously grant recipients have an incentive to be fast but the institutions just don't you'd think they were some kind of government yeah hmm. uh he he did say that that is not the typical state of affairs and uh harvard and other ivy leagues are particularly hidebound in this regard apparently um but uh yeah that is mostly good news with a little bit of fuck the government which is where i like to be on this show all right well on that note we're going to move into troop deployment as we all know politics is the mind killer and arguments are soldiers so in that spirit, we are having each of our hosts send out a new soldier onto the battlefield. And this week, we will start with David. Uh, my troop is the video game Tabletop Simulator, which is uh, it's $20 on Steam. Uh, it's just like a really basic physics engine, and then a whole bunch of mods that are the pieces and boards for board games... Uh, like dungeon maps for tabletop role-playing games and that sort of thing. And it just lets you play board games with people over the internet. Uh, as I'm sure people picked up from my first ever troop deployment, I do a lot of tabletop wargaming, and I've been doing that on Tabletop Simulator lately, and it's been pretty cool. Because normally I play with people that are near me in Virginia, but a couple of nights ago I played a board game with someone in New Zealand. All right, very cool. All right, Ineash. Uh I think that having immunity certification would be great, uh, assuming, of course, that uh, being a, that you can get immune from this COVID-19 once you get it. I don't see any reason why people who have had COVID-19 uh, would need to be restricted anymore. They should be able to open businesses. They should be able to walk into businesses. Uh, so I think once a test is available that shows that you have the antibodies, that you were exposed to it and fought it off, and now you cannot be infected and you cannot infect others, you should be free to do as you please. Um, I also think this would make a very interesting setting for some kind of dystopian future where there's two classes of people, those who have been exposed and those who haven't. And those who have obviously will have much better job prospects and other things because they can do high risk uh, work that people who don't have the antibodies can't. And so, you know, the most destitute in society would willingly infect themselves just to see that if they live through it, now they can get better jobs again. 
which, you know, that would be a, a bad side effect of this. But in general, I think immunity certification is a great idea because once we get to the point where maybe half the population is immune, there's no reason half the population should still be locked down, and we should start that as early as possible. All right, and I am just working through my backlog of things that I've been meaning to rant about. So this week's topic is school. School is bad. And if you don't know that it's bad, you're probably forgetting what it was like to be there. Um, schools lock children in little rooms and force them to sit down and shut up at precisely the ages where that is the thing they least want to do. Um, the, the only good data we have shows that it's important for kids to know how to do math and how to read and write. But once you teach those things, anything else that they teach in school doesn't seem to have a measurable effect on how well they do in life um, by any metric that we seem to care about. Um, so I am an advocate for unschooling, um, which is basically just letting children do what they want. I understand that's not really an option for more pe for a lot of people because they can't stay home with their children. So what I'd like to see is a reform in the school system that is focused on just teaching math and reading and writing and then lets the children play all day if that's what they want to do or do art if that's what they want to do and just have options there. Um, that allow the children to work at their own pace, to learn what they're interested in, and to learn through playing, because that's how children actually learn things. I am really curious to see if uh, schools end up shut down for a long period of time, how many other people are going to come to your conclusion that, I mean, I've seen a lot of people already saying, my child who has always had behavioral problems and anxiety and all these other mental issues is fine now. Uh, since a few weeks since the schools shut down they've been okay and if kids end up not really being significantly stupider and less skilled a lot of parents i think will be like i don't want to put my child back into these horrible mentally um scarring places if there's not a lot of benefit to it so that might be another cool knock-on of COVID 19 yeah we'll see and uh i just want to say that uh saying schools should still teach math is not a great plan because schools teach a lot of math that is completely worthless for 99% of the population. Just teaching them arithmetic will be fine. No need to go into geometry or algebra or, God forbid, calculus, unless the child really wants to, in which case they can go wild. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But if they taught him basic econ, then David would demand mandatory schooling. <laughs> We'll get into that next episode, maybe. <laughs> maybe right. we should have a segment like David rants about last fortnight's um, troop deployments. That <laughs> is what next troop deployment is for. You can rant about anything you want. Fair. All right. And on that note, they are, we are going to end the show. Um, we should have... In our show notes, we should have links to everywhere you can follow us. We are on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts. I think we're on Google Play. Um, if you're listening on the Bayesian Conspiracy feed, this is episode three. We're going to have one more on that feed, and then uh, all 
future episodes are going to be on the standalone feed. So if you enjoy our show, please uh, click one of the links in the show notes and subscribe that way. Um, yes, iTunes, Google Play. Soon there will be Stitcher as well. There will be a lot of ways to subscribe. So yep. please do subscribe if you enjoy this. Um, also, leave us reviews. As we said last week, leave us good reviews or bad reviews. We'll take anything. Um, and we will be back in two weeks. Same rat time, same rat channel. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.